Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content of these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Welcome to First Fridays. This is Beth Mulcahy, an attorney that represents HOAs and condominiums. Thank you for joining us here today for First Fridays. It's an opportunity for you to get your questions answered for free. My experience is that I've worked with over a thousand community associations in the state of Arizona since 1996 when I started my law firm. We came up with this creative First Friday idea to give board members, managers, and owners an opportunity to have one question answered for free once a month regarding HOA and condo law. So we're going to dig right into the questions here today. Looks like we have a large number of people here with us on Zoom and also additional people joining us on Zoom. So welcome. Looks like right now we have about 64 people on Zoom and additional people on Facebook Live. So welcome. So our first question for our June 2023 First Friday is from a manager. And the question is, in reading an article on HOA's water use and what's next regarding the water management plan. It states that HOAs with more than 10 acres of turf, where in the fourth management plan would I look to see which HOAs are are affected by this? So what you wanna do is you wanna go to the Arizona Department of Water Resources website. And this specific information can be found um, once you go there in section 6.1.2.2 of the fourth water management plan. But it talks, and if you go there, you'll be able to see um, all that information. We're also gonna be sharing the link with you um, from the Arizona Department of Water Resources so that you'll have that. If you have any questions, you're welcome to email me directly and we can uh, help you find that section if you you can't find it once you look at 6.1.2.2. And we're sharing that link with you shortly. Okay, the next question, number two, um, is an HOA legally responsible for paying for a reasonable accommodation for a blind person who desires a short eight-foot stepping stone pavers walk off their rear patio so they don't slip on the loose stones? The HOA board approved the request for the walkway, but the question is, should the blind person pay for it or the HOA? So great question. This is a question that you know brings into play the Fair Housing Act. Um, we have a great cheat sheet on this topic called Federal Laws that um, you can find on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. So the bottom line here is that it appears that, well, first, the Fair Housing Act says that associations cannot discriminate against anybody who has a disability. And somebody who's blind is, is going to definitely fall as a protected class under the Fair Housing Act. So apparently this particular owner um, requested to have some pavers installed because when they step off of their rear patio, they it would be easier for them to walk on the pavers versus the loose stones. So the question is, who pays for this request? So if you look at our cheat sheet on this topic, you'll see that this person is um, asking for a reasonable modification. Um, under the Fair Housing Act. And like I said, they meet the requirements. They have a disability. You know, this does appear to be a reasonable modification request. 
And um, with reasonable modification requests, the owner is required to pay for the reasonable modification expense. The board could gratuitously offer to pay for it, but you are not required to. And you can find out more information on that by looking at our federal laws cheat sheet, which extensively discusses the Fair Housing Act, reasonable modifications and reasonable accommodations. Okay, question three is our association does not have written architectural guidelines. We have motions found in the minutes and permissions for items in individual owner files that are often conflicting. Our four phases were developed in different years and the buildings have some different items such as what types of doors are permitted. Current board members feel we should change requirements which would somewhat change the exterior look. They also want to have owners responsible for items not previously listed in the CCNRs. How should we write the architectural guidelines? Okay, so it sounds like you have kind of a unique situation at your association. I am familiar with your association and I'm familiar with your documents too. So you have four phases in your association and sometimes that does happen where a developer develops the phases of time and different things are permitted or even sometimes the developer change changes during the phases, like maybe a developer files bankruptcy or they sell the rest of the land to a different developer. And, and then, you know, the property starts to have a little bit different feel from phase to phase. You're saying that the current board members want to change the requirements, which is going to change the exterior look of the buildings. And they want to have the owners be responsible for items that aren't listed in the CCRs. And so I think you definitely need to get an attorney involved in helping you navigate this issue because, um, well, first, if you want to change the exterior look of your property, you're going to have to do it in such a way that, um, A, it's going to be architecturally and aesthetically pleasing, and B, you want to make sure that you're representing the wishes of the owners, right? You want to, because you represent the owners as a board. And C, you're going to have to think of a plan on how to phase this, you know, and so we see associations that over the years, I've been representing associations for over 25 years now. And the color schemes in associations have changed. You know, when I first started practicing law, everything was Navajo white, and then it went to darker tans and browns and maroons. And, you know, now we're seeing kind of a resurgence of grays. And so for the exterior of the the property. So I think what you need to do is get some advice um, from your attorney who, you know, can give you advice on maybe you need to create a color palette for future paint changes in your community, or if you want to start mandating a certain type of door or windows, you'll want to make that a requirement as people renovate their homes. And it's kind of difficult to do this because it takes a while. I mean, you can't mandate that people repaint their homes if it's not necessary for them to repaint their home. You know, if it's so you try to phase these things over time. And so best piece of advice I would give you is if you're going to change the exterior look, get some advice from your attorney, bring in an expert to give you um, some advice architecturally on what would be a good fit for your community, like maybe a paint company or maybe um, an architect who could give you some advice or an interior designer who somebody, landscape architect who can give you some advice on whatever you're wanting to change. Then wanting to have owners pay for things that they're not normally have paid for in the past, but it's not really listed in the CCNRs. The CCNRs should be pretty clear on what the owners are responsible for and what the association is responsible for. So again, you need to bring in your attorney to determine how what's the best way to do that. 
Um, you, what you don't want to do is is pass something in your architectural guidelines that conflicts with your CCNRs. So definitely get your attorney involved in, in helping you navigate that process. Okay, next question, number four, is our condo association has a master insurance policy covering all 39 units. If there is damage to the common areas, such as the courtyards, service drives, outer walls, who pays the $10,000 deductible required by our policy before the benefits kick in? Is it shared by all members of the association or is the board responsible? Truly in 25 years of practicing law, I can tell you that these type of insurance questions are the most challenging for law firms that write opinions on these type of issues. And so there's a couple things that we, we need to look at. Well, first, apparently from how you submitted the question, I can see that you're a condominium. What I would do if I were looking at this issue is I would look at what do your condominium documents state about insurance coverage. Typically, if you're saying that there's damage to the common areas, typically that is going to be the association's responsibility for the common areas. Now, the question comes into play, did the owner's actions cause the issue on the courtyards, outer walls, et cetera? Or, you know, is there a third party that, that caused these issues? Usually maintenance is not going to be covered. So if the damage is maintenance, it's typically not going to be covered by the insurance policy. But let's say that there's a fire or water leak in a unit and it causes damage to an area. Um, we want to look at what your CCNRs say. Um, is the association's insurance the primary insurance? Is there anything about deductibles, like who pays the deductible if there's damage caused by an owner? Is there something that says that they're responsible for the damage? And so that's a really good question. You know, what you want to do is if the damage is to the unit versus the damage to the common areas, there's also an analysis based on that. Um, we also want to look at the Condominium Act because the Condominium Act talks specifically about insurance requirements for condominiums. So generally speaking, if the owner caused the damage, they may be responsible for the deductible if the language in the CCNR supports that. But if it's for making a claim on the association's insurance policy and there's damage to the common areas, I don't know who caused the damage. Based upon your question, likely then the association would um, have to pay the deductible. So again, this is going to be fact-specific, document-specific for your CCNRs for your association. We'll also look at the insurance policy and then we'll also compare the condominium act. So on something like this, it's hard for me to just give a broad, bright-line rule for you. I'd have to look at all those documents. Okay, question five. We have experienced roots coming through our plumbing into our toilet. Um, this is an owner asking this question. When it was replaced, these roots were visible at the base of the toilet and the plumber cleared them using salt to discourage root growth. I've never heard of them doing that. So that's interesting. I've seen a lot of cases with root damage. Now, months later, the symptoms are back. Our condo insurance for inside does not cover it. And we've been told that the condo policy paying through the HOA does not cover this situation. We are requesting documentation for what the community association's policy does cover and meeting resistance from the finance office. Should we not by law be able to see this policy? So great question. So this is a question as to what type of records can you request from an association? So under the Planned Communities Act, it appears that you are either a planned community, I think, but you said that you're HOA condo, so I'm not sure. So either the Planned Communities Act or the Condominium Act. They both give owners in an association the right to request books and records from the association. 
So what I recommend that you do here is that you write an email or a letter to the board of directors, ask for a copy of the insurance policy policies for the association and see if you know they should provide that to you within 10 business days of your request. If they don't do that, you know, then you can hire an attorney to help you get that document um, from the association. They are required to give that to you. Um, they can charge you 15 cents per page. So either you can hire an attorney or maybe you can go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate, make a complaint through their complaint process for HOAs and condominiums. There is a filing fee to do that, $500. Um, but you'll get that money back if the administrative law judge finds that they should have the new the, the document, which in my opinion, they should have in this case. Okay, next question, number six. Some residents are upset regarding flags. Our community does not have anything in our governing documents for treating flags like election signs. For example, political flags. Are flags to be treated like election signs? Okay, great question. This is a little bit of a gray area under Arizona law. So we'll have to just kind of analyze it from two different ways. Okay, so over the past few years, we've seen a lot of broad and a number of different bills being introduced by the Arizona legislature, passed by the legislature and signed by the governor. I'm talking about political activities in an association. And so owners are allowed to put political signs, obviously, on their property. That's been the law for a long time. But a question has come up mainly with the 2020 presidential election where political flags were being flown. And the big question is, is a flag a sign? You know, we as a firm have analyzed this issue the Condominium Act and the Planned Communities Act also have, you know, sections on flags and what flags are allowable, but it doesn't mention political flags, so to speak, for like political candidates. Um, so it's kind of a gray area because owners are allowed to have political signs, right? but it doesn't define political signs necessarily as being corrugated plastic and on, you know, wire holders. So what we've been telling our clients really since this issue first started coming up in 2020, 2019 and 2020 is as long as the political flag doesn't say anything that is offensive, we say that you should allow the person to fly the flag on their property. And so, you know, that's basically our firm's opinion on this. But again, it's, it's a little bit of a gray area because... There are certain types of flags that are allowed under Arizona law. And if you look at our top 10 cheat sheet, um, we talk about what those flags are. I mean, it's armed services flags, Arizona state flag, Indian nation's flag, but it, it doesn't cover, among other flags, it doesn't cover political flags. But on the flip side, there's also a law, Condominium Act and Planned Communities Act, that says that owners are allowed to have political signs on their property. Um, and there's a time period that they can fly it. So that's important um, that you would, you know, I want to make sure that we're aware of that. You know, they can only put it up a certain number of days before the election and then they have to take it down a certain number of days after the election. So I think that's how the flag should be treated as well if, if we're treating that as a political sign. Okay, question number seven, former board member. Are monthly assessments based on common expenses or on common elements? Okay, so great question. So how you determine how to compute monthly assessments is look at your CCNRs. Every set of CCNRs, covenants, conditions, and restrictions for associations will indicate what assessments are used for and how you compute 
how the budget to, you know, determine what the assessment rate should be for each fiscal year. So basically, it, it is common expenses. Now, there is an element of common elements, too, because you are budgeting for maintenance and repair of your common elements, or maybe you're budgeting for reserve items for long-term capital improvements in your association. So it's related. But if you have to have me pick between one or the other, we base our monthly assessments, you know, based upon what our expenses are for the association. But look at your association's documents for a more detailed dive on how your assessments are computed. Okay, question number eight. We recently amended our CCNR's preservation fee amount. Does this need to be recorded with the county to be valid? Only change is the dollar amount. So really great question. So a, a preservation fee is typically like a capital contribution fee or a reserve fee. And we actually have a great cheat sheet on that topic. So it's called like disclosure fees versus transfer fees. There are a lot of different names for a preservation fee. Basically what it is, is when a buyer purchases a lot or unit in your association, they're required to pay this fee, kind of like a buy-in fee. And that money is typically placed in the reserve account for the association and is used for like long-term capital improvements in the association, you know, like maybe maintaining a clubhouse or um, the pools in the association, et cetera. And so I don't know what your CTNRs specifically say about your preservation fee. Like, does it give the board the authority to change the preservation fee from time to time without a vote of the membership? Or does it just say generally that the board can charge it? If it's a specific amount in your CCNRs, you know, you, and it says like you can charge a $1,000 preservation fee and you now changed it to $2,000. Well, then you probably would need to do an amendment to the CCNRs, which would take a vote of the membership. If, however, it gives the board the authority to increase it, or it just says the board can charge the preservation fee, then you likely will not need to amend your CCNRs and get a vote of the membership to do that. Um, you would vote on it at an open board meeting. You'd notify the residents, uh, make sure your management company knows so that when there's a change of property ownership that they're disclosing this on the disclosure fee. It's hard for me to answer this question because I don't have your documents, but I think I've kind of given you a broad range based upon what your documents may say. Okay, next question. I am the board president and we are a small HOA with a total of 30 owners. Our bylaws require a minimum of three board members. If the board falls below the minimum, does a state agency within the Corporation Commission take over the HOA? If so, where would I find the information? Okay, really great question. This particular association is a small association. Sounds like you're the president. You're probably worrying what happens if I retire from being on the board, right? And, and it sounds like you may have some other board members who you know, either don't want to be on the board anymore or you can't find new board members. And so how do we handle it when you have a three-member board and you don't have enough people to be on your board? So a couple of different things that we typically will do in this situation. So I'm guessing that a quorum for your association is two out of three. So you can still operate as a board with only two board members, but you obviously are both going to have to attend every meeting and it's going to have to be unanimous decisions. So that's one pivot. Um, it's not ideal because your documents require three, but you can still get business done with just two. If you go down to one board member, 
you know, and even two board members, you can always look at your bylaws and typically you can appoint people to serve on the board for any vacancies that have occurred on your board. So what you might want to do is send out a letter to your membership asking people to volunteer to be on the board, start calling people, send emails to residents, your other residents in your small community, seeing if they'll be willing to help. If you can't get any volunteers after that, our firm helps associations with this problem. And we have a letter that we typically write. And the letter just kind of explains what happens if we don't have enough board members to run the association. And basically, the letter says that we can petition the court, and it wouldn't be the the Corporation Commission, it would be the court to appoint a receiver to run the association. And the receiver, you know, will run the affairs of the association instead of having a board. And it's very expensive to do this. So one of the first things that the receiver will do is pass, you know, or levy an assessment with the court's approval to pay the receiver to run the association. And I mean, we've seen these receivers get paid anywhere between 50, 60, 70, $80,000 a year to do this. So it's a pretty big expense. So once we explain that to the owners in our letter as legal counsel for the association, I cannot think of one time that we haven't gotten volunteers to run from the board, to run for the board or to serve on the board. So that's something that you, you know, definitely may want to consider doing. But again, if you can't get anybody even after that letter, then you should consult with an attorney about the process to potentially have a receiver appointed to run your association. Okay, next question, uh, number 10. During the May 1st Friday questions, you advise the annual meeting minutes from the prior year should be provided and approved at the next annual meeting. We use Robert's Rules of Order for our association, which states that annual meetings are annual, not quarterly. The board can approve the minutes. Minutes of one annual meeting should not be held for action until the next one a year later. What do you think? Okay, so Robert's Rules of Order is a a framework. It's a book, obviously, that was written to help different types of organizations run their affairs. Unless your association has in their bylaws that you are required to follow Robert's Rules of Order, which, as you know, are, as you may or may not know, are very extensive. It's volumes of um, books that describe how large organizations run, you know, and like a good example would be like the um, American Cattle Association or the NRA. Um, where they have thousands and thousands, like 30,000, 50,000, a million members at their annual meetings. HOAs are a different situation entirely. And in my experience, the associations all handle it in the way that I'm you know, suggesting. And that would be that it's the annual meeting of the members, right? And the members make the decision to approve the meeting minutes, right, for the annual meeting, not the board. And so it it typically is voted on at the year later annual meeting. Now, of course, the board can, you know, look at the minutes anytime after the annual meeting and make comments, but it's not proper for the annual meeting minutes to be approved by the board. It's proper to have the owners approve the meeting minutes. Now, of course, if your bylaws state you know, you are subject to Robert's Rules of Order for all your decisions of your board, then you can rely on this. But I think, you know, 99% of the associations that we work with do not have that requirement. Um, And I think the reason why they have that requirement in the Robert's Rules of Order 
is because these organizations are so large, it would be, you know, mayhem and chaos to try to get, you know, a million people to vote on the annual meeting minutes the next year. So they just want the smaller board of directors to approve them. Okay, next question, number 11. In a seasonal 55 plus RV and mobile home resort, where homeowners own their home and the land, can the association amend the governing documents to set a maximum number of year-round residents? I love teaching these classes because I always hear questions that I've never heard before in 25 years, and that's like a really good question. I think that this is something that your legal counsel for the association should definitely take a look at and give an opinion on. It would be unusual to pass a law or pass a, a restriction like this in your CCNRs because assuming that you own the land, right, you own your lot, to restrict the use of it, it would really need to be in the CCNRs. Um, and so I guess you are going to amend your governing documents, but how do you set that number? And what if somebody has lived there for many, many years and full-time and, and now they're, they can only live there three months of the year or whatever. I just I think it's an, it's an unusual um, change. And, you know, I think we should definitely talk about it, get homeowner input. And I'm not sure it's something that can be implemented after the fact. This is the type of thing that if a new community is being created, that people buy in and they understand that up front, um, it would be easier to do. But I'd have to look at, at the entire situation to give a full opinion on that. Okay, next question, number 12. We have a community member who is inundating the board and the community manager that with emails that range from questions and suggestions to rebuttals to board responses to demands of and scoldings of the board. There have been about 400 emails and 100 phone calls from this member in the last 12 months. Responding requires an immense amount of the board's time. We have heard there is no legal requirement to respond to a member's emails and calls. Is that true? So great question. I, I, I feel for you. I really do. This is a difficult situation when you're serving as a volunteer on a board. This type of a homeowner can cause a burnout of the board. I know it because when I was president of my association, I had this exact same situation and it drove me nuts. So I really do understand what you're dealing with. It also can cause managers to quit because it's just too much work to deal with this difficult owner. So a couple of suggestions for you as you navigate this. You really are only required to respond to records requests that are made by an owner. So an owner that is inundating the board and the community manager with this much information is unreasonable and borderline harassment. So I really encourage you to take a look at our cheat sheet on dealing with difficult people and harassment. It doesn't sound like they're making any physical threats, but it, it does give you some suggestions on how to navigate dealing with this difficult personality type. Often this person is also a bully. So we have a cheat sheet on that too, called, um, you know, dealing with a bully in an association and some tips on how to deal with that. So I encourage you to look at our website for both of those cheat sheets at mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay, how do we handle this person going forward? You need a strategy for sure. So I think what you should do is set up boundaries. And the boundaries that you're creating with this particular homeowner is that we no longer accept phone calls. So please do not contact the board or the manager with any phone calls. You are only allowed to contact the manager with the phone call if it's regarding an emergency. 
And in terms of emails, no more emailing board members directly. You know, for the manager, you know, I think what you will want to say is, I mean, you'll have to decide, are we going to say no future emails to the manager? Um, are we going to say all communications need to be by U.S. mail? I, you're just going to have to decide. Another option that you can do is you can just say, we don't want to deal with this person anymore as a homeowner, and we're just going to move this person to um, our attorney and have the attorney completely handle all interactions with the owner. And we frequently get called in when there's a really difficult situation like this to help the board navigate it. And really, the first thing that I do with the owner is I set up my own boundaries with them and say, you know, we don't accept phone calls of this nature. You are welcome to attend board meetings and, you know, state any grievances that you have during the homeowner forum, you know, and then make sure you put a cap on how long owners can talk during the homeowner forum. You only can communicate with me by U.S. mail if that's necessary, or maybe only one email a week. Put all your comments in one email and send it once a week. And then when they respond, you know, whether you're the board member or the manager or the law firm responding, you know, you just start giving them a monochrome response, like, we appreciate your comments. If it's a records request, you have to respond to it. And over time, the boundaries will start to eliminate the volume that you're receiving from this owner in terms of emails or U.S. mail letters that you're receiving. But if they can't respect the boundaries, then you really do need to escalate it up. So you need to get it to the attorney. And I can't think of one time that we haven't been able to enforce the boundaries on a difficult owner like this when it's been turned over to our law firm. And we just say no more communication with the board or with the manager. And then we need the manager and the board support. Like if the homeowner tests you, you got to just be very firm and say, this goes to the attorney. Do not contact me again. So there is a way to handle it, but it involves strict boundaries and not deviating from the boundaries that you create. Okay, just to answer the specific question, there's no legal requirement to respond to a member's emails and calls. Well, you have to respond to records requests. That would be number one. And number two, we can't, we have a fiduciary duty, right, to act with care. So we can't shut them out totally. So we should be saying, you know, you can come to a board meeting to express your views or you're welcome to write us one letter, one email a week with your views. What we want to do is make sure that we appear to be reasonable in case this goes to litigation and it's in front of a judge. We don't want to make it look like we are totally blowing off the owner because it makes the board look bad. We want to be reasonable. They need to be reasonable and we need to be reasonable with the boundaries that we set to. Okay, next question, number 13. My association is in the process of updating our governing documents. Since the last revision, there have been two board resolutions approved, which we now plan to incorporate in our updated documents. Is there a proper treatment of a previously approved resolution? Assuming the revised updated documents are approved, how is the resolution handled at that point? Does it just go away? Does it need to be undone by a vote? What happens to it? Great question. So over time, sometimes it's kind of a thing from the past is that associations have done resolutions to make decisions or to implement policies. It's really best not to use resolutions in our opinion. We suggest that boards, any decisions that they make should be in the meeting minutes and shouldn't be in a separate document called a resolution. Just easier. It's the official records of the association. 
So what do we do with these resolutions after they've been approved and in amended CCNRs? Basically, they just kind of fall by the wayside. I don't think you have to do anything formal. If you want to, you can put in the minutes of your association's meeting that the amendments were passed, the resolutions were incorporated into the new CCNRs, and therefore we're no longer going to be handing out these resolutions and this resolution is void because it's now part of our official documents. It's not necessary to do that, but if you want to, you certainly can. Okay, next question, number 14. We have a house that is not being kept up and the community is up in arms. So here's lack of maintenance. There are bags and bags of trash in the backyard and we see needles on the ground in a photo taken by a neighbor. The front has very tall weeds. We have called and left messages the owner was living there at one time, but we haven't received any responses. And we have sent letters to the owners. The house is owned by a trust with no response. We have requested that the police do a quick, do a wellness check, um, but have not heard back. Is there anything else that we can do? So a couple of thoughts on this. So there might be an issue where you might be able to get the city that you live in involved, um, the neighborhood services department or code enforcement. This may be a code violation of the city ordinances. Um, and so you definitely want to reach out to the city code enforcement neighborhood services department for the city that you live in and see if there's anything they can do to help you regarding the, the crash in the backyard, you know, and the needles, of course. Do you have self-help? Check your documents. Do you have the right to enter the property after giving notice to the owner and clean it up and then charge the owner for it? Based on the facts that you're showing me here, um, it sounds like this is a vacant property. You know, it's owned by a trust, you know, so you may not recover those self-help fees to go in and clean it up. Um, the board just needs to know that upfront. Maybe you're okay with that. Um, you also probably want to be really careful whoever you send in if you have self-help in your documents. It has to be in your CCNRs. Um, you want to make sure that you warn whoever is going in to do the cleanup that this is potentially like a hazmat situation and make them aware that there could be drug activity or drug use and needles so that they become an appropriate effective gear. Another thing that you, what I would recommend is have your attorney take a look at this. We get questions like this frequently about properties that have been abandoned, maybe even properties where there's been a death of an owner. Have the attorney take a look at who's the owner and are there any relatives that might be associated with this property? We have a lot of tools at our fingertips at our firm to locate people that may be associated with this property. Um, and so it could be a matter of maybe the owner died and the property is potentially now has been another person is responsible for it other than the owner. Or maybe it's we've had situations where the property is placed in a trust because it's maybe a child that is grown up now, but they are unable to take care of themselves. And, you know, maybe there are relatives that might be able to intervene and help in this situation. So doing a little research to give you better facts about what's exactly going on with this property. It's possible that if there's a mortgage or deed of trust on the property, that the bank might be getting ready to foreclose and um, our firm would find all of that in our research. So I think that's um, some good suggestions for you. So contact your city, contact the neighborhood services department or the code enforcement, see if they can help. Contact the police if you suspect any sort of illegal or drug activity in there, although it appears to be abandoned. And for a wellness check and follow up with them to find out what they found. 
you know, have your attorney look into, is the mortgage about ready to be foreclosed? Is there even a mortgage on the property? Who owns the property? And if it's a trust, are there any trustees or beneficiaries that we may be able to contact regarding the property? Um, So I think that that gives you some good suggestions on where you might want to go on this one. Okay, next question, number 15, from the president of an association. Um, Our current HOA governing documents that address renting and leasing state the following. No owner of a lot shall rent or lease such lot, provided that any owner, as of the date of the adoption of this provision, may rent or lease his, her, their, its lot, except that such right to rent or lease the lot shall terminate upon the transfer of title by the lot of the lot by the persons who are owners at the time of the adoption of this provision. My question is, does this provision apply to a home that's in a trust? And if the homeowner expires, can the beneficiaries of the trust rent or lease the property? Um, so really good question. I'd like to see like the full language of that CCNR provision, just to because usually that's not the only language. Usually those CCNR provisions are kind of long. So if the trust owns it and literally taking this and the right to rent doesn't terminate until the transfer of title by the trust, they probably would have the right to rent it. But I would like to see the full provision of this particular section in your CCNR to give you a formal opinion on it. Okay, number 16, from a property manager, we have an association with a new president that is not active at all in anything that comes to the board, including getting approvals for invoices to be paid, purchases, work to be done, He ignores all of our calls and emails. What can we do as a property management company? And what would your suggestions be for the active members of the board? Okay, great question. It sounds like you have an unengaged president. I don't know why, because typically most people who accept the role of president know that it's going to be the busiest year of their life. So I'm not sure if it was by default or maybe this person might have a health issue or a family problem or something going on at work that's prohibiting them from being that active. What I would recommend is for the board to, and the management company to reach out to the president and find out what's going on. You know, why are you not able to um, be engaged this year? And maybe they can explain to you then, and maybe they'll just voluntarily agree to, to step down as president. You know, and that's the best case scenario because then you can get one of the more active members of the board to step in and, and be the president for that year. And the process to do that would be the president just resigns as the president, but they stay on as a director at large. And then the board between themselves at a meeting redesignates who gets what position as an officer for the community. Sometimes in weird situations, you'll just have a president that for whatever reason doesn't want to do anything and also still wants the role as president. And, you know, in that situation, what most boards will do if you have an active board is they'll vote at a board meeting pursuant to bylaws of the association to remove the president's title from the president, the current president. And so that person is no longer the president. It's, you know, majority vote of the rest of the board. And the president is, the title is gone. So now they're just a director at large. And then there's a reconfiguration of who's, which position, officer position on the board um, is discussed at an open board meeting. All these things should be done at an open board meeting. Or the third option is, you know, just as a, a board, remember the president is just one vote, right? Even though they're supposed to be, you know, kind of overseeing the team and being the team leader, 
a third option would be to just work around it, you know, and just get a majority vote of the board on everything and just keep the person in the figurehead position as a president, but there's not going to be an active president. And the rest of the board is just going to have to step up and outvote on every decision that's being made. So um, I think I give you kind of three good suggestions. First one, reach out to the president, find out what's going on, see if they'll voluntarily resign their officer position as president. You know, the second thing would be to actively remove the officer title from the president pursuant to the bylaws. Most bylaws give the board the right to do that. And But again, the, it would just be the title is removed. There's still a director at large. And then the third option would just be to work around them, you know, just get a majority of the board to help on all these things. And it's going to be a very unactive president. Okay, question 17. Is secret or anonymous voting for general meetings or executive meeting board decisions legal or a good idea? It's not addressed in the governing documents. So I really don't like secret ballot. By general meetings, I'm not sure if you're talking about like board meetings or meetings of the membership. Um, I know executive meetings are going to be obviously just the board and executive session. I don't like it because I think that Well, first of all, for a meeting of the membership, it's an extra layer of work for the management company or the board um, when you send out the the ballots and when you're counting the ballots. And there's a lot of room for error. A lot of people don't do it right when they return it and it could spoil the ballot and we can't count it. You know, I think because there is a statute in Arizona that requires transparency and owners being allowed to see the records, I think that people want to see that the tabulation was correct and who voted for what, whoever. And sometimes when there's no identifier on the ballot, people are more uncomfortable and feel like possibly the vote tabulation isn't as legit because you can't, you know, see Johnny Appleseed voted no on this. It's just a no vote with no name associated with it and and no lot. So answer your question, is it a good idea? I would prefer not to have secret or anonymous voting at board meetings or um, at annual meetings of membership or special meetings of membership. Is it legal? You know, you just need to look at your documents. So there is no state law that talks about this. Some bylaws for associations require secret ballot in those cases, and you have to follow it. Uh, But again, I would recommend that you amend that because I don't like those sections. Okay, question number 18. Is there an easy way to track motions? Hmm, This is a good question. I'm going to give you a suggestion because hearing a question like this, it makes leads me to believe that your meetings are a little bit out of control because it seems like there's a lot of motions and maybe there's a lot of amendments to motions and you may need our cheat sheet on running board meetings because when I hear a question like this, I think maybe things aren't going as well as they should be at your board meeting. So you want to check out our How to Have a Successful Board Meeting Cheat Sheet. It's on our website. I would encourage you to do that. So to get back to the question, is there an easy way to track motions? The secretary or the manager, anytime a motion is made, should write down what motion is being made. That way, if there's a lot of discussion after the motion is made, sometimes people forget, okay, what was the motion again? I mean, even at my association, sometimes we do that. Can somebody go back and read what the actual motion is that we've been discussing for the past 20 minutes. So the president, or excuse me, the secretary or the manager should do that. The president maybe too could help if, if that's helpful. That's an easy way to track it. So when a motion is made and there's a second, then you know, we write it down so we know, you know what it is. The minutes really are the best way to track what 
ultimately happened with the motion, right? And so whoever's taking the minutes at the meeting, the best way to do this is to have your laptop right at the meeting and do the minutes during the meeting. Um, Whenever I'm attending a board meeting and the boards ask me to take minutes for them, that's exactly how I do it. So when I sign off the meeting, my minutes are done. So I don't have to go back and recreate them three weeks later. They're finished and I hit send to the board. Um, I would recommend that for you at your association and all the associations that are listening because it's fresh in your mind and you don't have to go back and think later, oh, what happened on that? Did we vote yes? Did we vote no? Um, So the easiest way to track the motions would be for that to be done as you're taking the minutes um, would be my recommendations. Okay, question 19. A condominium association. Our condominium community has several rental units with out-of-state owners. It appears the owners, we have difficulty getting, difficult time getting tenant information pursuant to Arizona revised statutes 33-1260.01. It appears the owners don't have a statutory agent as a point of contact locally. Does state law still require a statutory agent? And if so, how do we get compliance regarding the tenant information? Okay, so great, great question. So there is no specific law that requires an out-of-state owner or an owner that might be in-state that rents their property to have a a statutory agent. So a statutory agent, by the definition of law, is that this is the person that can accept legal proceeding papers on behalf of another, on behalf of a corporation or an LLC. And so there isn't a legal requirement to do that. Now, what I would recommend is that if you have out-of-state owners and you're having difficulty getting the tenant information from them, what we need to do is remind them, well, first check to see if they're listing the property as a rental property with the county. And if they're not, turn them in as not being listed as a rental property. The county and the city that you live in will definitely investigate that because they're gonna want the tax dollars from the rentals. Um, Second, I would recommend that you, either the board, management company, or your attorney, send the owner a letter letting them know that this is what the law says. This is the information that we can request for you anytime there's a change in tenancy. And these are the fees that we can charge you. And then each time there's a change in tenancy, send them a, a letter asking for the information. And we have a cheat sheet that's really helpful on this that we can share with you or that it's on our website on rental properties, um, just go to our website at mulcahylawfirm.com and then um, click on the rental properties cheat sheet and it'll tell you the different categories of information that we can ask for um, from an owner. If the owner regularly doesn't comply and give you the tenant information, then I would turn it over to your attorney. And what I would do if, if this matter was referred to my law firm is I'd pick up the phone and I'd call the owner landlord, explain to them that This is going to get expensive, you know, in terms of legal fees, if you don't comply with this. And basically the fees that we can charge, unfortunately, we are restricted under the law in that we can ask them to provide us with the categories of information. So like the name, the names and the um, vehicle description and license plate numbers for adults that are staying in the unit or lot as a tenant. If you're 55 and over community, we can ask for proof that the one resident is 55 or over, and we can ask for how long the the lease is. 
Now, where you run into problems here is where this is like a VRBO or an Airbnb, and they've got tenants in and out all the time, you know, and I guess basically one thing that we could do would be to have somebody keeping track of it at the property. Usually that's what happens. The neighbor's upset about it. They keep a notebook of all these different vehicles that are coming in and out. Um, and ultimately, we may have to go to court to ask the court to require the owner to um, comply with the law on this. And that gets expensive. And that's typically what we will threaten the owner. If you don't comply with this, this is what will happen. Now, we can't fine for this um, by law. You can just charge um, the $25 fee. And then if they don't provide it, then we can charge a, a late fee for them not providing it. But we can't fine for them not getting us the tenant information according to your normal fine schedule for your association it's set up by state law. Okay, next question is question number 20. And we're doing pretty well on the questions. Um, it looks like we have about 43 questions. So we're almost at the halfway point. Let's see. So question 20, our HOA, a planned community, has a community pool. Our streets are private and maintained by the HOA. Our CCNR state that street parking is only for guests. We do have parking areas with line spots, 40 total, and several areas of the neighborhood, including near the pool, that are in the same tract as our streets. Are there any requirements that the HOA must provide handicapped parking? You know, you probably want to check with your city or if you're in the county with the county to see what the rules are on that. There likely are rules for the parking area that you do need to provide handicapped parking. And of course, if you have a resident that's asking for a reasonable accommodation on this, you likely would have to make a designated handicapped space at the pool so that you don't get sued under the Fair Housing Act. So this is probably one where you may want to bring in your attorney to give you some advice on this. Okay, next question, question 21. We have a requirement for tenant registration. We just added a fee but I want to know how high we can make the registration fee. And if we add a fine for not submitting timely, how much can that be? Can we waive the fee and fines for family members and trust or trustee relationships? Okay, I really encourage you that you look at our cheat sheet on rental properties because Arizona law is pretty specific on what we can require a landlord to provide regarding their tenants. And I kind of just talked about this in the last question. There is certain categories of information that are the only things that we can ask for from the landlord owner regarding their tenant. And there are certain fees we can only charge a, a minimal fee for the paperwork to be provided by the landlord owner to the association and their minimal fees. So whatever fee you just added, it needs to comply with state law. Um, so make sure you check out our cheat sheet on rental properties you know, there's a $25 fee, that's the highest you can go. Um, and you cannot fine for them not submitting it, you can just charge the late fee that's outlined by the statute. Um, and can we waive it for family members and trust or trustee relationships? My feeling on that would be you need to treat everybody the same. If it's a family member, you know, letting another family member stay there without a fee or without any sort of a rental relationship, then it's technically not a tenant landlord situation. Okay, question 22. I have had numerous homeowners come to me with questions and have told them to come to meetings and ask them. They're either told they can't be discussed and they walk out or leave, or I will get back to you and never do. 
I've actually asked for documents myself and today is the 10th day and still no response. What can be done? Okay, so whenever I get questions like this, it's so helpful when you fill out your name. If you tell me, are you a homeowner or are you a board member? Because I'm kind of a little mixed up as to who's asking this question. So I think you're a homeowner and I think you're saying that you've had other homeowners come to you with questions and you're telling them to go to meetings. Maybe you're a board member. And if you're a board member telling the homeowner to do this, that's the right thing to do as a board member. You shouldn't be talking on behalf of the board outside of a board meeting, unless it's like a real simple question, like, where do I find the form for this? But would you approve this architectural application? That question outside of a meeting, do not answer that. That is a minefield. Okay, so you're saying now that you've asked for documents and from your board, I think, and today is the 10th day. They have 10 business days to respond, not calendar days, it's business days. And there's still no response from them. What can be done? I kind of talked about this a few minutes ago earlier in the presentation. So if the board does not comply with the records request, what you can do is you can hire a lawyer to send them a letter demanding that they provide you the records. Um, You can follow up with them again and ask them when they're coming and remind them that they violated the law by not getting the documents due within 10 business days. Um, You can go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate and file a complaint there. And there's a filing fee for that of $500, but an administrative judge, law judge will rule that they're required to give it to you. And then you'll likely get $500 filing fee back and maybe even a penalty. Um, I think those are kind of the different options that you have. Okay, next question, 23. Electronic ballots. We would like to offer or emphasize using email electronic ballots for actions requiring a resident vote. What additional steps, notices, processes are required to obtain and count votes received via email? For example, if a ballot is an attachment, is the resident required to print out the ballot, sign, and PDF the executed ballot back? Or can an electronic signature on the ballot and or confirmation of their vote in the body of an email response work? Um, We have a great blog, two great blogs on this topic that I would really encourage you to take a look at. You can find these on our website, mulcahylawfirm.com, or we may be sharing them with you now as well. So Arizona law does allow online voting for associations that may want to utilize it. There are different ways that you can do the online voting. You can go high tech or you can go low tech. Um, If you're going high tech, you bring in a company. There's a company by the name of, I think it's called HOA Vote Now, and they'll handle the whole thing for you. They send out the ballots. They tabulate the ballots for the association. They just need the emails for all the owners in the association, and it works really well. We've had a lot of meetings where we're the legal counsel at the meeting, and the vote is taken electronically, entirely electronically. For any owner that wants to vote by paper, they can if they request it. If they want to vote in person at the meeting, they can under the law do that. So you can go high tech by using a company, farm it out to a company and have them handle it for you. You can go low tech by saying that the ballots can be returned um, by email. And what I would recommend if you're doing it that way is have the owner take a PDF uh, or take a picture of it or um, send it back with an electronic signature. You know, I think probably the safest way to do it would be just have them fill out the ballot, take a photo of it, and then have a place for them to return it and a time where they return it, like a common email address for the association, and then return it that way. 
I don't like the idea of sending an email saying I vote for the special assessment and then, you know, it's an electronic signature that way. I, I, as attorney for an association, I would not accept that. It either has to be the official ballot form that would be used in order for it to be accepted. Okay, next question, number 24. Earlier, I saw Mulcahy Law Firm address decreasing water use. Now that Arizona may be entering into a water restriction agreement, what other additional prudent measures should an HOA take? We have a great blog on this, which I would encourage you to take a look at. It's on Arizona HOAs and water use and what's what's next, what's in the future. For my team that's listening to this presentation today, we need to start talking about this more in upcoming um, you know, social media and blog posts because this appears to be an issue that is going to continue to come up over the next few years. So we'll, I guarantee you, we'll keep writing about this in the future. Um, so what prudent measures should HOA take? Well, first of all, I think you need to take a look at the information on the Arizona Department of Water Resources page. And you need to determine, does this apply to our association based upon how much turf we have? You may want to bring in an expert on water preservation. I recently was at an annual meeting for an association for a large master plan community, and they brought in as a guest speaker at their annual meeting a water conservation expert. If you contact me um, by email, I can give you that person's name. Um, I can get it from my client. And this person did a fabulous job explaining what this association needed to do to comply with some of the state requirements for water um, restrictions that are, are in place right now. You also may want to consider thinking about converting turf to um, desert landscaping. You know, it just really depends on how much turf you have in your community and what your water usage is. And getting an expert in to give you some advice on this is really a great idea. Okay, next question, number 25. It has been said that if you are not attending monthly board meetings, then it is presumed you are happy with how the community is running. I have been, I have become a sounding board for many that simply will not speak up in a public forum. In the past four years, I have attended board meetings and academies, which both encouraged HOA participation in decision-making. Our HOA does not encourage this participation. Is the only solution to this becoming a board member? Great question. So I do kind, I do want you to know that it is my general belief that the boards that don't have a high attendance level it's because people are generally happy with how things are going in the community. So owners and residents are generally happy. I think that is, I think that is true to a certain level. There are always in every community, just so everybody's on the same page here, there's always some people that aren't happy and it's usually a small percentage, but the majority are typically happy because A, they don't wanna be on the board, right? And so, and they think that you're doing a good job as a volunteer and if you're not doing a good job, they're going to send an email or they're going to write you a letter or they're going to come to a board meeting and tell you you need to do better or you need to focus on this or this is a problem. Why isn't it being addressed? That's my experience in 28 years of doing this, that most people will reach out. And if it's really bad, a lot of people will reach out. So what do you do if you're a homeowner that's not happy about how things are going at your association? What are your options? First option would be to run for the board yourself, like you suggested. Another option would be to remove the board or board members that you think are not doing a good job. And you can look at our cheat sheet, our top 10 cheat sheet. We talk about removal of board members in that cheat sheet. 
um, and the process under Arizona law that you must follow to remove a board member. Now, those removal processes are expensive and divisive for communities. So I really would encourage you that's a last resort. Another thing that you can do is move. If you're unhappy living in the association, try to find a different association that's a better fit. Another option is go to the meetings and give feedback in a professional, nice way about how you view the problems in the community and any suggestions that you may have. Another thing would be to get like-minded people in your community together and get power in the numbers and talk, start talking with them about their concerns and then bring that feedback back to the board as not just as an individual, but as a group. You know, and I don't know if you're you're saying you're not happy how it's running. I don't know if they're violating the law. If they are, maybe then think about getting a attorney to help you um, or going to the Arizona Department of Real Estate to have an administrative law judge look at how the association's board is operating and determine if they violated the law or their documents. So I think this gives you a lot of different ideas on how you can handle if you're not happy with how your community is running. Okay, question number 26. We are a self-managed 184-unit HOA. The treasurer has changed the address from the clubhouse where the HOA office and the corporate mailbox is located to his personal address for all of association business. Treasurer also uses his personal credit card to make HOA purchases and then writes reimbursement checks to himself and his wife with no explanation on the check memo. Do you consider either of these above to be best practices? Well, I don't know that much about, you know, I'd like to always hear the other side of this, but I guess I would like you to take a look at our cheat sheet on fraud and embezzlement. We have that on our webpage. So it's how to prevent theft, fraud, and embezzlement in your community. So take a look at that at mulcahylawfirm.com. On our cheat sheets tab, you know, I'm not saying that this is fraud or embezzlement or whatever, but... I think the address for the association should be an address that is going to stay with the association. And board members change office frequently, officers change office frequently. So having a PO box, having the management company's address, or having a property address, which it appears that the clubhouse is an actual property address, I think is the best policy for an association. Using a personal credit card to make HOA purchases, I know sometimes it's inevitable but I wish you wouldn't do that as a board. If you are doing that, there needs to be very detailed documentation. Like there should be a memo on the check and the receipt should be attached to the check stub in the association's books and records. And the board member should be authorized by the board to do what they're doing. They should just be, you know, at Home Depot and think that, you know, we need a new rug at the pool and I'm just going to buy it. And now I want reimbursement. This should all be tied up nicely that they have the authority to do this. And then if they do use their personal credit card, that there is a very good paper trail, meaning that if we're reimbursing them, the actual face of the check should indicate what the reimbursement was for. The check stub should indicate what the reimbursement was for. And the invoice should be attached to the check stub in the association's records. Okay, question number 27 from one of my favorite clients who I haven't heard from in a long time. So great to see you here today. Our family, our community is single family residential. A group of six non-related persons can make up a home. Can a senior assisted living group home exceed six? What about rehab group homes? 
So this question comes into or brings into play the Fair Housing Act. I would very strongly encourage you to take a look at our cheat sheet on um, federal laws, which you can find on our website. I know you're familiar with it because I know you are a frequent flyer at a lot of our events. And so we just look up the federal laws cheat sheet on our website for the deep dive on this. The short answer is under the Fair Housing Act, there is a special exception that says that associations must allow group homes and uh, this nature. And so if it's an assisted living group home, you really have to check with your city to see what are the maximum number of individuals that can be in there. It really doesn't matter that it's single family residential as defined by your CCNRs, because we do have to make a reasonable accommodation for a group home under the Fair Housing Act. I think the important question is, is did this group home get a license from the city or the county? And in your case, it's going to be the city. And are they, did they follow what the license was granted for? So typically the license based upon the square footage of the home is going to say how many people can be in there. Senior assisted living groups are, are going to be something that's going to fall under the Fair Housing Act. That's pretty common. Um, group homes for the elderly. Rehab group homes typically do also follow as long as they are um, for rehab and not like active users, whether it's drug abuse or alcohol abuse or whatever. It has to be a rehabilitation under the way that the Fair Housing Act is organized. So I, I would encourage you to make sure that these group homes have the proper licenses and that they're following the maximum number of people pursuant to the license. Okay, question number 28 from another one of my frequent flyer favorite clients. Great to see you here today. Are there any legal problems with switching all monthly meetings to virtual and have no in-person meetings going forward? So we really saw this issue come up in the pandemic, obviously back in 2020, where we flipped everything to virtual when meeting in person just wasn't allowed pursuant to the, the state government orders that were issued by our governor at that time. So are there, one thing I can say is that this is very common now. I rarely personally attend a board meeting or an annual meeting for an association. Why? Because it's more convenient for the associations to be conducting them virtual. Two, they don't want to pay for the attorney's fees for driving to the meeting. And it adds to the, sometimes it doubles or triples the cost to have the attorney attend. And so from a practical standpoint, you know, we're seeing more and more virtual meetings. But there is something under Arizona law that requires that the meetings be held in Arizona. And that part of the law hasn't changed, even though the pandemic kind of changed how we're operating business. So if you have owners that are wanting to meet in person, and, and we do see associations that are getting those type of requests, what I would recommend is like a hybrid board meeting where owners can attend via Zoom or another platform if they want to, but there's also an opportunity to attend the meeting in Arizona in person. So if you switch all meetings to virtual, if an owner raises the issue, hey, the meeting, we have to have the meeting in Arizona and you're not having it a space in Arizona where we have the meeting, then your board likely is going to have to switch to hybrid and give that person an opportunity to attend the meeting in person. And, and probably an easy pivot on that is if you have a management company, just have the manager be you know, at the management company in a conference room for the meeting. And then if the owner wants to attend the Zoom, 
meeting, you know, in person, they can be there in the conference room with the manager. Okay, uh, question number 29. Are there any statutory requirements that vendors such as roofers, painters, pool cleaners, et cetera, be licensed, bonded, and insured? Our bylaws state that this is only required for vendors working due to insurance claim requirements. So yes, definitely there are some Arizona state law requirements and you wanna take a look at ARS 32-1151 or call the Arizona um, Register of Contractors and their website also has some great information on this. Um, kind of a rule of thumb is that, you know, anytime that you're using a handyman and the expense is over a thousand dollars, they need to be licensed and bonded. But most of these different entities that you're looking at here, the roofers and the painters, they for sure need to have a license with the register of contractors. I honestly don't know the answer if the pool cleaner does. I do know that like landscaping companies that do irrigation, they need to be licensed the pool cleaners, I don't know the answer on that. So you may want to check with the registered contractors on that one. And regardless of what your bylaws state, the state law is going to, you know, trump that. You have to follow state law. Your board has to follow state law on this. We have two blogs on this topic. One's on best practices for dealing with vendors and then hiring a licensed contractor. It's worth it, which we're going to be sharing with you shortly. Or you can find them on our webpage at mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay, question number 30. Looks like we've got about 12 more questions. So question number 30 from a board president. Is it allowed for a board member to request her written letter, which is highly critical of the management company and several board members, to be read out loud at an open board meeting? Note that the statements are mostly false or exaggerated in the opinion of other board members and the management company. It is also requested that the letter with her opinions be attached to the open board meeting minutes. Does this violate the fiduciary responsibility of confidentiality, among other things? FYI, her actions are continuously consistent with the definition in your cheat sheet of a gadfly. Okay, so great question. So you have a resident who likes to write letters that's critical of the board. The board makes a decision about what the agenda is for board meetings. So, you know, an owner can't demand that her written letter be read at the meeting in an effort to embarrass or whatever the board members and the property management company. So the board does not have to allow that. Does the board have to attach the letter to the meeting minutes? No, you don't have to do that either. But the owner has the right to come to the board meeting and at appropriate times make statements, those actually don't even have to be in the minutes either because the minutes only reflect what was decided by the board. So actions taken by the board. If the owner is really pressing the issue, you know, you could put a sentence in the minutes that Gabby Gadfly made comments regarding the temperature of the pool or whatever, but you're not required to. So again, this is kind of like a bullying type thing where this person is trying to bully the board to get her way. I mean, obviously, any letter she sends to the board is a book and record of the association. You do have to keep that with the association's records, but you don't have to do the things that she's demanding that you do here. Okay, next question, 31, former board member. Our board of directors has approved a complete re-roofing project for the association, $2 million. An assessment has been charged to each homeowner of $6,500 and some change. First one is due. First part of the installment is due July 1st, 2023. Second installment due October 1st, 2023. 
The homeowners had no vote on this project. Many are senior citizens and do not have the funds available to pay. Is this legal? What is our option? So it is kind of unusual, and I don't have all the facts on this particular incident, but it is sort of unusual that this large of an assessment is made without a vote of the membership. And it's unusual that there's such a short timeline for such a large assessment. What are your options? So I don't know if it's legal or not because I haven't seen your association's documents. Typically, a special assessment of this nature would require a vote of the membership, but maybe your documents don't require a vote of the membership and the board can just levy this. I don't know because I don't have your documents. So what are your options? So I think probably the first thing I would do is if you can't pay it under the payment plan that they proposed, go talk with the board, try to work it out, see if they can give you more time. A project of this nature, $2 million roof redo, this is going to take some time. This is going to take months to start and finish. And so, you know, see if maybe they'll give you an extension to pay this. That's one option. I mean, another option would be to meet with a lawyer and have a lawyer give you an opinion as to whether the way that the board handled this is correct according to your documents. And if it's not correct, maybe have the lawyer write a letter. I think those probably are your options. If you're having a $2 million roof redo, it probably means that your roofs are in pretty serious condition and need to be you know, totally redone. And getting involved in a lawsuit and holding this process up when there's such a need for re-roofing, I really would encourage you first just to try to work it out with the board and see if there's some sort of payment arrangements that can be made for the people that can't pay it under the plan that they proposed. Question number 32, can an amendment implemented be implemented in an association prohibiting group homes? We're hearing a couple questions on group homes. So I hope that Calista from my office is listening because we need to write an article about this in the very near future for our, our future you know, social media and, and some of our Mulcahy memos that we send out. Um, so can an amendment be implemented, amendment to the CCNRs prohibiting group homes from owning or forming or operating within a condo association in the same way that amendments can prohibit ownership by registered sex offenders. Would this be by a majority vote? Okay, so this is like a, uh, this is in a condominium. And this honestly is like a bar exam because there's just like issues flying everywhere here on this. I'm getting anxiety even reading it. So number one, because we've talked about this a couple of times here today, check out our cheat sheet on federal laws because under the Fair Housing Act, there's a special exception that allows for a group home to exist within an association, HOA or condo, as long as it meets the criteria of a group home exception under the Fair Housing Act. So you probably cannot do that. The way that you said that amendments can also prohibit registered sex offenders, that's a little bit of a sticky wicket because there is a very small reference in the rental provisions of the Condo Act and the Planned Communities Act that talks about being able to amend your CCNRs to prohibit certain levels sex offender. However, very few associations have actually done that. And I think there are some constitutional challenges that can be made if an association tries to do that. So if you're thinking about doing that, make sure you're getting legal advice before you implement that. And then are any amendments to the CCNRs, would this be by majority vote? You have to check your individual CCNRs. Every set of CCNRs has a different requirement to amend them. And it's listed right in the amendment provision of your CCNRs. 
Okay, next question, number 33. Which documents, CCNRs, bylaws, rules, architectural guidelines, is or are considered to be legally binding? In other words, which documents could be the basis for a breach of contract if the board, manage, board or management company fails to follow the governing documents? Really all of them. If you're not following any of those documents for your association, it could be considered a breach because they are all legally binding. Okay, next question, 34. Somebody who's thinking about running for the board. I love that you put that in there. So if I have the right to view approved architectural requests, how do I make a records request for them? The HOA manager tells me that, let's see, I can't read the question. There we go. The HOA manager tells me that they are attached to the homeowner account and they are private, so I cannot view them. Hmm. Okay, so a couple of things. I never like to play hide the ball on these records requests, just as a, a rule of thumb. It worries me a little bit that your uh, manager is saying that this is private and you can't see it. So let's just back it up a little bit and let's talk about what records you can see. And you can find a very specific detailed description of records requests. If you go to our top 10 cheat sheet, um, we have just a section just on records requests. I think it's number 10. So if you made a records request for an for any sort of architectural approvals that were granted or disapprovals that were given on a particular lot, in my opinion, that is a book and record that the association must provide to the requesting owner who's requesting the information. Now, there are certain categories of information that you can't have that belong to the association's records, right? And one of those categories is any personal information regarding an owner. And I don't think that the approved architectural request, in my opinion, is personal information. Personal information would be like a social security number, a bank account number, their cell phone number, their off-site address, their property address that is not the address at the association, um, their telephone number. I think I said email. Those are the types of things that are personal. And unless the owner allows by signing a sheet saying, I allow you to put my email and my cell phone in the member directory, it's not something that we should be giving to other owners. On the other hand, an architectural approval, that's a book and record of the association, no question in my mind, and it's not personal. And that should be given to you as a requesting owner. So I guess, what do you do? You should go back and show this video. You can go back to, you know, take a video clip of this and give it to the manager and say, hey, I talked with an attorney that this is her practice area. She's been representing associations for 28 years. And she says this is not a personal record and that this needs to be given to me. So I'm making this request again. And hopefully they'll do the right thing and give it to you. If they don't, you may need to get a lawyer. We've talked about this a couple of times. I think records requests is going to be another topic that our office needs to be talking about. So Calista, I hope you're listening. Records requests, owners making records requests and the proper way for association board members and management companies to handle it. We're going to be talking about that because we've seen that question now three times today so that we help our boards to make good decisions. If you're a homeowner and you can't get the records, what are your options? A, try again, write a follow-up letter. I'm asking for them again, reminding them that they're violating the law, get an attorney, go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate, make a complaint against them, file a lawsuit. Those are, are really your options. Okay, uh, next question, number 35. Can an association add in CCNRs a limited amount 
of rental or VRBOs with the community, or do they need a percentage of homeowners to add this in? This really, I have to see your CCNRs on this, but we have we have a cheat sheet on amending CCNRs and you know also how to implement rental restrictions. I don't, in my opinion, I have limited facts on what you're giving me, but rental restrictions need to be very specific and they need to be in your CCNRs. And so if your board is trying to put a cap on the number, that really needs to be in the CCNRs. So I think that needs to be a vote of the membership. Now, I haven't seen your CCNRs. Maybe it gives the board the authority to do this without a vote, but more likely than not, CCNRs aren't that specific and your board is just implementing it when they really do need to get a vote of the membership to put something in place like that. Now, that being said, I don't like these provisions where I don't suggest to my clients that you put percentage caps on rentals because they're like really hard to enforce. Like who do we decide gets to rent their unit this year? Do we have a lottery? And then what about people that don't win the lottery that year? Or do we first in to rent, then they get to keep it until they no longer want to rent? I mean, there's some fairness arguments on that and it's a nightmare to regulate and oversee. So we typically don't advise our boards to do that because it just creates lawsuits and problems down the road. Okay, question number 36, and we're getting really close to the end. It looks like we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight more questions. Okay, our architectural control committee circulates the written requests for modifications to each of the members of the committee who then approve or disapprove the application and return their answer to the chairman. The majority opinion then prevails. Is this legal? No meeting is called. So I'd like to know probably a little bit more about your association to let you know if this is legal or not. So a couple things. Under Arizona law, if your architectural committee is a committee that meets regularly, although I'm kind of hearing here that they never meet, um, but if it was like a, a regular meeting that's being conducted, it would need to be an open board meeting. And that means that owners would have to be notified that the architectural committee is meeting the first Monday of the month at 6 p.m. And that would have to be an open meeting where owners would have to be notified and be given the opportunity to attend and, and you know chime in and speak at appropriate times during the meeting. I don't have your CCNRs, so I don't know if how your architectural control committee is set up. Does it require meetings? Can decisions be made outside of meetings? Maybe it's silent on this. What I can tell you from being in the trenches for 28 years representing associations is that most architectural committees do operate this way, where they don't have formal meetings all the time, and they make decisions outside of a meeting. You got to really carefully look at what your documents state, like, does it have to be unanimous? Can this even be done? Do we have to have a meeting? So the best advice I can give your association is if it's working to have you do it this way, take a look at your documents. See, are we doing anything wrong under our documents? Get your lawyer involved to give you advice on it. Where this comes into a problem and where I see this as a problem as an attorney that represents associations is somebody's upset about an architectural application, whether it's the neighbor upset that you allowed the large gazebo on their on a neighbor's lot next to you and you can't see anymore the view, or or maybe you deny the gazebo and the owner's upset about it, you know, and they want to hear how the votes panned out and they wanted to be given an opportunity to hear the discussion and give input. When there's a problem, that's when it gets all ticky tacky on how did you conduct this meeting? When there's no problems, it's honky dory, everybody's happy. But when a problem comes up, 
then how you handle the architecture review is hyper-analyzed. So if you're having one that is really going to be controversial or difficult, or there's going to be somebody aggrieved and upset and want to file a lawsuit on it, please get your attorney involved and have them give you advice about the best way to handle the application. I mean, we have Zoom now. It's so easy to review these things on a Zoom call. Having minutes helps us if this goes to litigation and making sure you better understand like, hey, do we need just a majority or do we need everybody to approve this if we're doing this outside of the meeting? Or, hey, since this is so controversial, should we really do this in a meeting? Of course, if an owner asks for a meeting, you should do the meeting. Um, because if you don't do it, it's going to look bad if this gets, goes to litigation that you just made the decision and they ask for you know, time to be heard on it, et cetera. So hard question to answer because I don't have your documents, um, but get your lawyer involved to help you with the processes for your association so you make sure you're doing them correctly. Okay, question number 37. We have the master HOA and then our sub HOA. We're looking for guidance on who is responsible for what in regard to architectural requests for landscaping. This is a gray area. Our HOA has three board members that will not support getting this clarity. How can homeowners resolve this issue? Our board president is extremely aggressive and has been demonstrating this in public. Our HOA management company intimidates residents to be silent. Guidance would be most helpful. You know, there's a couple ways you can handle this. So how do you determine who's responsible for architectural requests? I mean, you, you should look at the documents for both the master and the sub. The language is in there and um, you hopefully you can read it. It's easy to understand and you can get your answer just by reading the documents. If it's unclear who's responsible for what and on this area, you may want to hire a lawyer to help you interpret it. You also remember you're a member of the master association. So you could approach the master association if the sub association isn't being helpful and ask for their opinion on it. Go to a master association meeting, talk to the manager for the master association and see if they can give you guidance on whether they're responsible for it or not. Um, I think that there's some good directions and some good starting points for you on that particular issue. Okay, question number 38. Can we show movies copyrighted at our clubhouse for movie night for free or do we have to pay a licensing fee? Um, it's so funny that you're asking this question because I'm looking into this for our association right now for uh, a movie night. I have looked at this issue for associations and I have looked at this issue for my association. So they're very specific on the websites for movies and you typically will have to pay the licensing fee. If you don't pay it and somebody finds out about it, like these companies that have the license for that movie, there are very stiff penalties. So what I would recommend that you do is whatever movie that you want to show, just Google that name and, you know, community viewing or HOA viewing and licensing. And the companies that have the licensing for that movie will show up and you can read the restrictions that they have in terms of how many people are coming and if you need to have a license or not. But typically HOAs or condos that show a movie on their common areas, whether it's outdoor movie night or swim up, swim up movies or whatever, they typically do have to pay that licensing fee. And it is, it's expensive, but it's the right thing to do because the penalty is really horrible if you don't follow it and you get caught. Okay, question number 39, which architectural control committee meetings, if any, 
are subject to the open meeting requirements of the association. In particular, our ACC meetings called for the limited purpose of inspecting ACC compliance subject to such rules, or can ACC meeting attendance be limited to ACC members? Okay, great question. So this again goes, we had a question on this a few minutes ago. So, okay, architectural control committee meeting meetings and how you make decisions, look at your documents, okay? Because it should say, it may say, hopefully it does say how the minute, how the meetings are conducted. Like, do you have to have a meeting in person? If it doesn't, it just says that there has to be a vote, then follow, you know, whatever your documents state. So are they subject to the open meeting requirements for the association? I don't know. The only way that you would be subject to the architectural control committee having been subject to the open meeting law is if your architectural control committee has regularly scheduled meetings to review these applications. If you don't, then they don't have to be open meetings. If they don't have to be open meetings, then the architectural committee can meet without it being an open meeting if it's not a regularly scheduled meeting and make decisions on things. But again, as I said a few questions back, if an owner is wanting to attend a meeting or owners in general are wanting to attend these architectural committee meetings, I think it's best practices to let them do that because that means they're unhappy about something and it's potential that you're going to have litigation and we want to have our best selves paper trail if something's challenged. And the best way to have our best selves paper trail is to make them open meetings, have meeting minutes, and have a majority vote of the committee at the meeting making decisions on things after reviewing the application, hearing home feedback from any homeowners, and then making a well-reasoned duty of care decision by the architectural committee. Okay, question number 40. We're down to our last four questions and we're you know an hour and 43 minutes in. So that's great. We're almost at the two hour mark. Um, we amended our CCNRs in 2004 and have stopped rentals forward and homeowners who purchased prior to the amendment could still rent. So there's like a grandfather clause. However, in the original very first CCNRs in 1996, there was no mention of rentals at all. Could this be a problem now since the Callaway decision? No, I don't think so, would be my, my initial response. So I don't know what your CCNR amendment said in 2004. It appears that you said no rentals for any prospective or new owner after 2004, but current owners could rent until they sell. There's a six-year statute of limitations if you're a planned community to object to that CCNR amendment. That's clearly run it's one year if you're a condo, and that has clearly run too. So I do not think this is a problem because you have the original CCNRs. You did an amendment properly. It appears to be properly, and the statute of limitations has run. So I think that amendment is still valid and there shouldn't be any issues based upon that hallway decision. Okay, question number 41. In electing board officers at an open meeting, is it a requirement to make a motion and vote on each position or can it be by affirmation vote of the board for positions agreed upon? Okay, so you are the first meeting after the annual meeting and the situation is we've got to pick our officers for the next year. Now, how this usually works, because I've attended a ton of these, is that everybody just agrees among themselves. Okay, will you be treasurer? Do you want to be president again? And everybody just kind of agrees upon it, and we all move forward. Technically, you you know should just make a motion 
and then list all the positions and then everybody agrees this is how it's going to be done and then have minutes that reflect that so it's clear in the minutes who's which officer position for the coming year so can it be by affirmation vote of the board yes so you can just do all at once i think is your question yes you can do it that way no problem you don't have to do each position motion you know that's too tedious you don't have to do that Okay, question, last two questions. Question number 42, can board members self-nominate themselves to be officers, including the president of the corporation association? I'm kind of laughing about this because I've been on my board now for 14 years. And at the first meeting after the annual meeting, usually nobody wants to be the president, right? So it's kind of like, oh, I guess I'll do it if nobody else wants to. But it appears that in this case, we've got somebody who really wants to be the president. Um, and so, sure, I mean, I think you certainly can express, hey, I would like to be the president this year. And, um, you know, you can make a motion for yourself to be the president. You, you have the right to do that. It's just I'm chuckling a little bit because I think maybe they don't realize what a difficult job it is. But no problem. You can self-nominate if you want to be, but rec recognize you need a second and you have to be voted by a majority of the board for that position. Okay, next question, which is our last question for today. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the new legislation, so don't sign off before we leave today. Last question is, we have a tenant with a car registration that is over a year outdated. We normally tag the owner's car and it's immediately addressed. The police will not come into our community because it is considered private property. The tenant believes we are harassing him and on the verge of calling a racially fueled event. We are 38% rental and these are the only ones we have trouble with. How can I handle this as president? Okay, so the first thing I would look at if I were analyzing the situation as an attorney would be, what do your documents state about vehicle parking? Okay, so I'm assuming the car registration is, no, it's not valid anymore, right? And so do your, and they're parking in a common area parking space, or maybe they're parking in their carport or in their driveway. What do your documents say about this? Do your documents prohibit unlicensed vehicles from being in this area? So you want to make sure this actually is a violation. And is the vehicle, you know, is it, because it's unregistered that you're upset about it, or is it because it's inoperable? Um, and so what do your documents state about this? You have to, the documents have to support whatever decision that you're doing here. If it says that all vehicles that are parked, you know, in this area have to be licensed and operable, and it's not licensed, then you're within your rights to proceed forward on this. One thing that I would caution you on is that this owner or this tenant is saying that, you know, you're harassing him or her because of their race and that raises for housing issues, right? And if they've put that in writing or you think it's a true serious threat that they're going to do something on it, you may need to notify your insurance carrier that this is a potential claim that could be made in the future um, and do that in writing. You probably want to bring in your attorney right now because this could escalate into a Fair Housing Act with the attorney general's office fair housing act issue and so you want to make sure that however you're handling this is really very with advice from the attorney and that you're handling it in the most proper legally proper way possible because this potentially could be challenged in the future um, so i hope i've given you some tips on how to proceed on this you need to check your documents you probably want to talk to your attorney and you need to be very careful on how you handle this because this person is claiming that you're discriminating against them you may want to consider turning this over as a potential claim, 
possible claim to your insurance carrier so that if it does escalate into a full-blown claim, you have insurance coverage. Okay, somebody stuck in a question at the last minute. So let's see, we got one more question. So from a board president, is it allowable for a board member to request her written letter, which, okay, this might be the same question, I think. Oh, we want to clarify, sorry. My office is so good. They're giving me all the tips and I'm reading over them, which is not good. Somebody asked me to clarify my answer for the question below. The gadfly in this question is a board member, not just an owner. So a board member is requesting her written letter, which is highly critical of the management company and other board members to be at an open board meeting. Okay. I still think the same analysis is, I don't, she can't request that her written letter be read aloud. I mean, I guess, is she reading it? I guess, or does she want somebody else to read it? She's welcome to make her statements. Okay. But there's a different little analysis on this because this is a board member. So as a board member, you know, you have a responsibility to act in the best interests of the corporation, right? And if you are making comments, and I don't know, because I haven't heard this other board member side of the story here, but if you're making comments that are potentially defamatory regarding your board and your management company, hey, there might be some liability here for you and for the board, because the management company could sue the board for this. I doubt they would, but or maybe these other board members could sue the board for this behavior. So I'd be really careful about allowing this type of an attack, whether it's justified or unjustified in an open board meeting. I just think it's irregular. And so it appears to me that you've got some problems at your association and you need advice. And what I do in situations like this is I recommend that I come to your board meeting and we have a boot camp where we talk about these issues because it's obvious to me that there is some unrest on your board. And, you know, this board member is so aggrieved or so upset that they are now attacking the other board members. I don't know if it's justified or unjustified, but how can you get things done when there's so much unrest on your board where people are in so much disagreement? Um, And I mean, even myself on my board, We don't always agree on everything, but I would never get up as a board member in our meeting and start trashing another board member or the management company or the manager. That's just not something I would do. I would be professional and I would say, I'm concerned about this. I think these are the reasons why I'm concerned. Can we talk about this? Can we come up with, you know, some solutions? Do other people see this as a problem? This has gotten to the breaking point at your association where there's so much distrust or whatever is going on. You need help, would be my comment. So I may be your attorney. I'm looking at the name. It looks familiar. I think your board as a group needs to bring in somebody to help mediate this, help you find some common ground, get to the bottom of the problems. And a great way to do that is to hire a firm to come in and do a boot camp. Usually they last about an hour, an hour and a half. I have never had a boot camp that I went into that we didn't come out of that meeting functioning at a much more professional, respectful level as a board going forward. So I highly encourage you to do that. But do you have to read the letter of the board member? No. The board member can make statements they want, but I'm cautioning this board member, be careful because what you say could be get you in a legal pickle and could get the association in a legal pickle if you're saying things that you can't back up. And even if you are you feel genuinely feel these things, there's a much better way to handle this than going super aggressive like this. 
Now, if the board's shutting you down and they're not letting you talk, then more reason for the boot camp too. Okay, so that's it for today. Just a very brief legislative update because we just have a couple of minutes before we hit the two hour mark. As you know from attending maybe our prior seminars since January 1st, 2023, the legislature has been in session since early January. They're currently on a break until June 12th. The budget has been passed. There's been four bills passed and signed by our governor pertaining to HOAs and condominiums. We have a great cheat sheet um, that outlines those four bills that will become law um, and that that won't happen until 91 days after the legislative session ends. Again, we're still in session because the legislature is on a little mini break until June 12th, 2023. So I anticipate that the next few weeks are going to be quick. I don't think that there's going to be any other HOA or condo bills this year. I could be wrong, but um, I've been watching legislation for 28 years. Um, and so once the legislative session is over, we're going to give you a formal cheat sheet that outlines what bills were passed this year. Um, there's really nothing that we can't live with of the four bills that have been passed this year. And I'd recommend that you take a look at our cheat sheet on this topic. We're going to be talking about the final legislative year once the legislation legislative session ends. And we know for sure that there are only four bills. Um, we've already kind of been talking about them throughout the um, class I've been teaching since January. If you want to look at what's, what's been passed so far, check out the cheat sheet that we have that we're sharing with you right now, or you can go to our website. It's on the homepage of our website. There's a link right to that at that point. Just a couple concluding remarks for today. We had 75 viewers here with us on Zoom today. So thanks so much for being here. Um, we also had 13 live viewers on Facebook. So great turnout today for June. Um, because I know a lot of snowbirds have already left for the season. So um, a couple of things that are coming up in the future. Don't forget to join us for our firm's 2023 Virtual HOA Condo Academy, um, which is going to be our sixth class of 2023 on Tuesday, June 20th, 2023 at 11 a.m. The topic for this session is going to be everything you need to know about Arizona HOA and condo law in 60 minutes. So I'm going to give you rapid fire. These are the most important things you need to know if you're a board member, homeowner, or manager. And we're going to do that in 60 minutes or less. And then we're going to have some question and answer periods for you to ask any questions on the presentation or any other questions at the end of the seminar. We are just want to make a quick announcement, just so everybody remembers, we do not have a first Friday ever in July because of the July 4th holiday. And so in July 2023, just like we've done in the past, we are not going to have our first Friday free call-in. And so that will be pushed to August will be the next one that we have. Um, we do have our neighborhood services classes in July. So um, our next two classes are going to be the June Virtual HOA Condo Academy in June. And then we'll have the, the next one in July, the third Tuesday in July. Lastly, please, I'm asking you a favor. We, we still have about 58 people on board here today. I need your help. Um, our firm would love it if you would give us a Google review. We are sharing a link right now in the chat and in the Facebook comments to leave a review on our firm. We are always happy to get feedback from our customers and friends and people who just listen in to learn more about the industry. Um, it takes a lot of time to put these classes together every month, and um, I would sincerely and genuinely appreciate it 
if you would give us feedback with a Google review right now. So don't forget, um, we're giving you the link um, and we're asking you as a favor to please let us know how we're doing by giving us a Google review today. So thanks so much for being here today. Uh, we look forward to seeing you at our next class that's coming up here um, on June, in June, on June 20th, um, our next Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Condo Academy. So we hope to see you there so you can find out everything you need to know about Arizona law in 60 minutes. So I hope everybody has a great couple of weeks and we'll see you again. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 